couple of weeks ago, we talked about heading up north as a wedding destination, and this week we want to talk about heading up north as a final destination. Did you know that there are actually some very noteworthy people who are buried up north in Michigan? So let's just give you a little review as we get started here this morning. Anybody know who this is? This is Pierre Marquette, and who was one of the early people in Michigan and actually went on to discover the, or explore the northern part of the Mississippi River. He passed away uh, near Ludington, is buried in St. Ignace. And we actually have a, ga- a guest here this morning from Marquette, Michigan, named after him. We brought them down just for this special occasion here this morning. So one of our final destination people here. How about this? This is probably a little more obscure. This is a guy by the name of Bruce Catton. Anybody know who Bruce Catton is? He was a famous Civil War historian and an author and wrote tons of stuff about the Civil War, considered one of the foremost experts. He's actually buried in um, Benzonia, up there, um, up north as well. Uh, Bruce Fleming, an old sportscaster, used to do a lot with golf, used to do wide world of sports. That's going way back, isn't it? And uh, he's actually uh, buried in, let me look here, I think he is buried in Harbor Springs. And yes, he is Harbor Springs. This person's interesting. Um, Ella Bacchus. Anybody ever heard of Ella Bacchus? Ella Bacchus was the first female assistant United States attorney. The Western District of Michigan set a precedent when it hired Ella Bacchus as an assistant United States attorney in 1903. She not only became the first female assistant United States attorney, but she also passed the exam in the late 1800s without the benefit of law school. Her dedication was never doubted and reinforced when she refused to go ill the day before she passed away at the age of 76. So she worked up right up to the end, Ella Bacchus. And then, this is my favorite, I think, um, Robert Heft. Anybody know who Robert Heft is? Bob Heft, in fact, actually probably everybody in this room has been impacted by this guy at some level, whether you realize it or not. When he was 17 years old, this is back in 1958, he realized that Alaska and Hawaii were going to be admitted to the Union. And so for his history project that year, he submitted a design for a new American flag. He got a B- minus on the project, but just shortly thereafter, he also submitted this design, and he was called by President Eisenhower to be told that that would be the design that is still on the flag that we use today of the 50 states um, and the stars and stripes there. So this was the guy. I don't know how up north he is. He's buried in Saginaw, but I thought it was north of here, so we're going to hold on and count it, right? And a great story anyhow. Um, by the way, just just, just a, a uh, addendum to the story here is the teacher did change his grade and raised it to an A. So uh, we, we've got good news for, for Bob Heft there. Well, two weeks ago, we went up north to a wedding. This week, we see Jesus at a funeral. And personally, I'd rather go to a wedding than a funeral, wouldn't you? At the same time, if Jesus could only make it to my wedding or to my funeral, I would much rather that he showed up at my funeral. And the story that we're going to look at today explains why. So let me invite you to join me and turn to Luke chapter 7. And we're going to read this story of Jesus at a funeral, where he shows up unannounced, and once he gets there, everything goes uphill from there. So it starts at verse number 11 of Luke chapter 7. 
And it says this, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain. We'll throw this map back up here on the, on the screen. And we've been looking at this, uh, the different weeks. Uh, sea of Galilee, this is the Galilee region over here up north, Judea. And Jerusalem would be down in this area down here. And we've talked, uh, talked about the call of Peter. Uh, Peter was from Bethsaida, but that call happened somewhere around Capernaum, Bethsaida. And then we talked about the wedding, which was in Cana there. Last week, Chris took us to Nazareth, which is Jesus' hometown. And Nain, you can see, is a little bit further south of Nazareth, also up in the mountains there. Nain was a small village up on top of a hill. Uh, there wasn't much going on in Nain. In fact, if you went to Nain, you went to Nain because you intended to go to Nain. Nain was not on the way to anywhere. Nobody passed through. Everybody went there as a destination. And it was about 25 miles southeast, or excuse me, southwest, oops, wrong button, southwest of Capernaum here, so you could, uh, where Jesus' uh, home base was, so to walk down to Nain there was 20 to 25 miles. So it was a significant trip to get down to Nain, but Jesus went down to this town called Nain, in verse 11 there, and his disciples went with him, and a large crowd went along with him. And as they approached the gate, a dead person was being carried out. So you can imagine the contrast here. Jesus arrives or is coming to Nain with this crowd, with this entourage, and he's done some miracles now, and he's, he's developed a gathering and a following. And you can imagine kind of a loud, raucous crowd coming into town with Jesus, and, and maybe he was turning around and talking to them, and the conversation's going on. And then in contrast, coming out of the gates of the town of Nain is another parade of people with their heads down, with sobbing, maybe some wailing, maybe some weeping. And these two crowds meet on the street there outside of Nain. Verse number 12, as they approached the gate, a dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. The only son of his mother, so now she's childless, and she was a widow, she was already husbandless, and now she's alone in this world. It's only this contrast of joy and excitement set off against pain and desperation and hopelessness and loneliness. And it says a large crowd was with her. At least they were with her for the moment. Would they still be there the next day or the next week or the next year? If it's like most of us, probably not. Because every one of us, our lives go back to normal. But people like this woman, she has a new normal and nothing's completely the same anymore. And so the crowd has come with her. They're there to bury her son. They're probably going back to the same area where... She had buried her husband, maybe to the same tomb that she had hoped to be buried in herself someday beside her husband, but now it's going to be used for her son. And we see this woman just a pitiful, sad situation. And when, verse number 13, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. 
And I suppose he could have said a lot of things, and this seems like a strange thing to me to say, don't cry. Of course she would be crying. But he said it because he knew what was going to happen next. Verse number 14 tells us he went up and he touched the beer. He touched the stretcher that they were carrying him on. And the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And I read that there, and it reads just so matter-of-fact, doesn't it? No way. Can you put yourself in this situation? You're, you're following this stretcher as it goes out. This young man is lying on the stretcher, the life gone out of him. And this stranger comes up on the road and says, don't cry. And he touches this man and says, get up. And he comes to life. I've been to many funerals. I have yet to have anybody come back to life in a funeral. I hope it stays that way. Unless Jesus is here. But can you imagine the emotional swing of this mother? Or one moment, her head's bowed, she's grieving, she's alone in the world. In this stranger, there's no indication she even knew who this was, meets her, raises her son back to life. I mean, at first she probably was like, what's, that, what's going on? And then the reality hits her. And I can't imagine the joy. And those tears of grief would have been replaced by tears of excitement as Jesus does this incredible miracle. And it says that the crowd was impressed. They were filled with awe and they praised God. And a prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And indeed, God has come to help his people. And the news about Jesus spread throughout all Judea and the surrounding country. Well, let me just point out a few things that, that as we get started here, this, this woman, she was in a horrible place. Grief upon grief, incredible loss. In fact, as she looked at her story, she was probably walking out that day saying, why me? Why, is this, why does it keep happening to me? Not only was she experiencing this, she was in a really bad place now too because she didn't have a husband to take care of her. And she didn't have a son to take care of her. And in the, uh, in the economics of that day, and in the, in the situation of that day, she would have been basically at the mercy of society now. So she was in a horrible place, even financially. But she meets Jesus because evidently Jesus went to Nain with the purpose of meeting this woman. We don't see any other thing that happens in Nain. We don't ever see Jesus go to Nain any other time. So we can make that assumption that Jesus went to Nain knowing that there was something going on in Nain that he needed to do something about. And this is not the only time that we see Jesus do something like this in Scripture. We also see him going across the lake to Gadara. There's some maniacs there. He heals them, casts out demons. He gets in the boat and goes right back. We also see him going through Samaria to talk to a woman at the well. It says he needed to go that way because Jesus is tuned in to individuals. And so Jesus seems to go there with the purpose of helping her. And it's interesting because we have a crowd here and we have a crowd here. But the story all comes down to this individual who didn't ask for anything. If you look at that story again, she never said, oh, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. Oh, Jesus, since you're here, maybe you can heal my son. 
We don't even know if she knew who Jesus was. Maybe she'd heard of him, didn't even realize who this person was who was walking into town. But she asks for nothing. And yet Jesus helps her because it's in his nature to do what's good and to do what's kind and do what's loving and to do what's helpful. And she never asks, but he still responds. And Jesus surprises everybody, not just by healing somebody, he surprises everybody by touching the body. You weren't supposed to do that. That made you ceremonially unclean. And yet Jesus stops and touches him and says, come back to life. And the people praise God, even though they don't really maybe even realize exactly who's there. Is this a prophet? They didn't really get that he was the Messiah. And so we look at the obvious lessons of this story. The first one is this, is that Jesus cares about people's needs. And this morning, if you're in the place where you feel like this widow woman, where everything is kind of blown up in your face, or where, where everything's come crashing down on top of you, Jesus cares about your needs, and he moves towards needs. He can be in Capernaum and say, you know what, there's a need down there in Nain. I'm going to Nain. And in your story, he can see where you are and say, I'm going to move towards that need, and I'm going to do something about it. And Jesus moves towards needs because no need is too great for Jesus. And you think about this, there's a lot of needs that you could have, whether it's financial or whether it's health or whether it's relational, whatever the need might happen to be. If your need, whatever it is this morning, it's highly unlikely that it's going to be greater than this need where the son is already dead. And yet this need was still no match for Jesus. And so whatever it is that you're facing this morning, let me just say, your need is totally meetable by Jesus, no matter how drastic or how desperate or how dire it happens to be. So we come out of this story, and maybe we relate to this woman, or maybe we look at her and say, you know what, I, I don't have it that bad, and I hope I never do, but if I have it that bad, so then I hope that Jesus can, can step in and help me there. Or maybe we say, I've experienced some losses in my life, and I have experienced Jesus helping me. And maybe this is the message that you need, though, is that Jesus does care about you where you are. And the pain that you're in, and the hurt that you're going through, He gets it. He's paying attention, and He is moving towards you where you happen to be. And we could take those lessons and we could probably walk away from here this morning encouraged. But I want to encourage us to do something different here. I want us to pause and to go back and to look at this story again and to see if there might be something else here that we can learn. And I want you to think about what it said. Jesus arrived at the town and the crowd, a large crowd, was with him. It's interesting, isn't it? There was a large crowd with him. He had come from Capernaum. He had come 20 to 25 miles. He could have come by himself, probably, and I realized that he had, you know, his reputation had grown and people were following him. But if he started off with Capernaum, he may have said to people, hey, I got, I, I'm going to go on a trip, I'll be back. 
Or he even said, you know, I'm going to Nain, that's 20, 25 miles, you probably don't want to go with me here. Or he could have, you know, started out under the cover of darkness, and so he got there early in the day. He could have done all those things, and yet the crowd was with him. And I think he intended for the crowd to be with him, because he could have made it otherwise. And yet he said, and yet the, the story is told that the crowd is with him. And why is the crowd there? Well, I think maybe because that was a good opportunity for Jesus to reveal himself what he was like, who he was, what he could do, his power. Maybe he was trying to show that he, or show many people his power over death because that was going to be part of his story later on with the resurrection. Maybe it was to have several witnesses there at this event. But those would have been things to teach people about himself, and those are all valid possibilities. But maybe he was trying to teach the people with him a greater lesson about how to live. Because he walked into the story of this woman and he did something pretty incredible. And every day we have the opportunity to walk into the stories of people like this woman and to do something pretty incredible too. Now, we're not likely to raise somebody back from the dead. But we do have the opportunity and the possibility to still bring life into people's story. And so I would say this is something that we can learn as we look a little bit further here. It's this. We need to be aware of the vulnerable around us. And I've chosen this word vulnerable on purpose because this describes this widow. She's vulnerable. She has no son. She has no husband. She has no economic means. She has no way to take care of herself. In this society of the day, she is at the mercy of that society. She is incredibly vulnerable. And I think Jesus knew that, and that moved him to do something. But vulnerability is something that we hear about a lot, but I'm not sure it's something that completely touches us. And I'm not so sure that it's something that actually moves us. Because we live in, in our situations where we actually avoid vulnerability, right? I, I, I'm living the American dream, so I am trying to be safe and secure and separated from all of this uncertainty in, in stories. But there are people all around us in our world who are vulnerable. There are people all around us that are close enough for us to walk into their story. There are people living in poverty in our community. I was talking to somebody this week who had been a volunteer at one of the uh, Grayson Elementary Schools for lunchtime. And she talked about the kids who would come into lunch and have nothing to eat. One girl who finally came in with a sandwich one day. And you know what was on her sandwich? Butter. But the girl had a sandwich for the first time that year. But that's the vulnerability that live even in our community. People who deal with poverty, people who struggle with family support. I remember um, back at, in South Bend, we took some, some uh, trips to Monterey, Mexico to visit orphanages there and, and missions trips that we took our college kids on. But these kids weren't even actually orphans. These were kids whose parents couldn't afford to take care of them, so they went and dropped them off at the orphanage's door so their kids would actually have something to eat and be taken care of. 
We see people like widows. We see in our communities kids without dads. We see the elderly who are vulnerable. We see the disabled, the infirm that are vulnerable. We see single moms that are vulnerable. We see refugees in our worlds that are vulnerable. I think uh, back a couple of weeks ago, Don Parsons uh, met with, with us on a missions meeting. I think he said 175 million people right now live outside of the country in which they were born. 175 million. That's more than half of the population of the United States. Vulnerable people. We have people dealing with, not so much in our continent, but, but in Africa dealing with AIDS issues. On our continent, though, we have people who are being trafficked for sex, people who are owned by others. There's a lot of vulnerable people in our world. And I want to remind us of that this morning. That one of the reasons I believe that Jesus went to Nain was for the vulnerable people. And the reason he took a crowd is because there's a lesson there about vulnerable people. And we need to be aware of the vulnerability. In this widow, in this story, she divines vulnerability. And what Jesus did is he gave high value to this woman. But you know what Jesus did also? He gave value to women throughout his story. Women were more vulnerable in that day. Maybe you can back up with me. We talked in uh, earlier this year in our Are We There Yet series. We looked at that passage in, in, on, on divorce, where basically a guy could get a divorce for any reason he wanted to. I don't like her anymore. And Jesus said, no, we're going to change the rules on that because we're going to protect the women here. But Jesus, throughout his ministry, is tuned in even to vulnerability in that way. Think about the miracles that were done for women. The woman with the issue of blood. The woman who was bent over where Jesus sees her in the synagogue and says, let's straighten you out. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. Peter's mother-in-law was healed. The demons were cast out of Mary Magdalene. Jesus was constantly reaching out to women here in the story. Encounters the woman at the well. The woman taken in adultery. The woman from Syrophoenicia, and we're going to talk about her in a couple of weeks. After the resurrection, he appeared to the women first. And there were various roles and stories that we hear about women in the life of Christ. I think this is an interesting passage here in Luke chapter uh, 8. Let's go over the next passage from where we are, verses 1 and 2. It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And it goes through the list. Mary Magdalene, Johanna, Susanna. But these women were traveling with him, which was unheard of in the day of the rabbis. They have women in the, in the followers. And actually, some of these women were financing the trip there, if, if you keep reading along there. In Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha are there at the feet of Christ. And remember, Martha's upset with Mary because she's at Jesus' feet. Well, that wasn't where women belonged in the day, but that was where women were welcomed in the day. And I point this out because when we see in the story the, the widow at Nain, it just fits with this greater picture that we see of Jesus of bringing value to women. So we see this woman who was a widow, and we also see this woman who was a mother. But in this picture of Jesus, 
we see a woman who's also a daughter, a daughter of God, and Jesus moves towards her. But then the third thing that comes from this is it reminds us that we have the responsibility and the opportunity to act in compassion. It says what his heart went out to her. His heart went out to her. Pity says what? I feel sorry for you. And I may really feel sorry for you. Empathy takes it a step further, and it says, not only do I feel sorry for you, I I feel sorry with you. And I try to enter into this moment emotionally with you. Maybe it's because I've been through a similar experience so I can relate. But then there's another step that comes after that, and it's the step of compassion. And compassion is when I will actually do something about this. Chris talked about this word for compassion, but it has an active element in it. When you look at it in the original Greek language, it's the same word that's used in the story of the Good Samaritan. When he took pity on the man, it's that he saw the need and he was compelled to act. And when we talk about compassion, Jesus models compassion for a crowd and for this crowd, our crowd, when he not only feels for this woman, not only does his heart go out to her, but he steps into her story and says, I can do something about this. One of the things that I'm excited about going on here at Waterford Community Church is, is, out, is we continue to get younger and see younger people here. Uh, just this past week met with a, a team that the majority of which is younger people, and I love the enthusiasm they bring and some of the ideas that they're bringing to the table. But one of the things I love about this next upcoming generation is their empathy and their compassion. And I've invited two people that are teaching me a lot about empathy and compassion right now to share with me a little bit from their story. So um, they had no choice because they wanted to eat today. So Lindsay and Allie, if you guys will come up here, I just want to ask you a couple questions about some things that you guys have been experiencing in your life recently. We'll start with Lindsay. Lindsay, some of you are... You're going to have to hold that right up to your mouth so people can hear you. Lindsay, last year studied abroad in Uganda. In part of that program, you went, uh, you had, they think they called it a practicum, kind of like an internship. That'd be a good way to describe that. I'd like you to tell me just a little bit about where they ended up sending you. So for my practicum, um, I was there for four months, and I was at a school called Salama, which is a school for the blind. Um, And it's a school for kids who otherwise wouldn't be able to get an education because in Uganda, blindness and physical impairment is really stigmatized. Um, So for the most part, if you have a physical disability, you're not able to get an education and you're really shunned by society. So if what you told me is, is, uh, I think I'm recalling this correctly, is kids in school, the public schools are really not very good, so most kids have to pay to go to school to get an education. Mm -hmm. But if you have a blind child and you don't have a lot of means, they're going to be the last ones that you send off to to school because you're trying to get your healthy kids sent off to school. So they went off to Salama to the blind school. You were there helping them. How did that school get started? Um, The school was started by a man named um, Francis, who himself is blind, um, and he grew up and somehow was able to get an education, and he got um, a college education there and realized that there was a big need in Mukono town, which is where I was staying, um, where kids were really neglected who had any kind of visual impairment, and so he started a school for kids to be able to attend. 
which is fascinating, isn't it? The vulnerable looking out for the vulnerable too. So I thought this was interesting too. The kids learned who Lindsay was by her voice, but are you ready for this? But also by her smell. So, yeah, that's her, okay, yeah, so that was Lindsay. So you came back, you finished up your last semester, we're shifting gears here, and you were Indiana Wesleyan, and then you participated in something called the Brain Kitchen. Yes. Tell me about the Brain Kitchen. Um, the Brain Kitchen is an after-school program, um, and it's for kids in the community who are at risk, who grow up in impoverished homes, and they come two days a week, and we help them with their homework, and we cook with them so they can bring food home to their family for the weekend, and we do different, just like, activities with them. Now, if I understood that right, though, you cooked for them, but taught them how to make that meal, right? Yes. So they could actually go home and make that meal in their house for their family. Yeah. Pretty cool. All right. We're going to shift over here to Allie, who uh, didn't go off to uh, Africa this year. She went off to Los Angeles. And uh, <laughs> Allie had taught for a couple of years up in uh, New Berlin, Wisconsin in the, like the number four high school in the, in the state of Wisconsin, right? Right. Okay. And then you switched over to the Red, or to Redlands? Yep, Redlands, Red, Redlands California, in a mm -hmm. totally different situation. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about where you've been this past year. Right. So I teach seventh and eighth grade now, which is a whole other conversation. Um, but I teach in a school that's Title I, which means that there are enough students there who qualify for federal assistance that the entire school um, qualifies for money from the federal government. Um, that doesn't actually mean that we have a lot of money. It really it means kind of the opposite. Um, so the majority of our students receive a free or reduced uh, lunch, which is basically an indicator that their families are not able to provide enough food for them. And I teach all the kids who are EL students, which means that they're learning English. So that's usually a mix, right? I have some kids who have come pretty recently to the United States, and then I have some kids who have grown up speaking Spanish because there's a really large um, Latino population where I live. So it's kind of the really interesting mix of cultures. Um, but because of that, most of the students I teach live in poverty. Um, and with poverty usually comes a lot of trauma. So there's a really, really high correlation with students who grew up in poverty and something called adverse childhood experiences, which are things like abuse, neglect, um, having parents who are separated, having parents who are incarcerated, having parents who are using substances in the home, um, having family members who struggle with addiction, early loss of loved ones. So kids come to school with very few people who are supporting them, either because um, their parents just can't, because they have to work so much to keep um, really their family alive. I have kids who usually don't see their parents until the week weekend, um, or who have parents who, I have a girl whose dad is in prison right now, things like that. Um, so they come to school without a lot of people really kind of in their corner, and I have them for two hours a day, and they are so fun. They are, I mean, they come to school, you can, they come with that, um, for lack of a better word, I don't like this, but they come with baggage, you know, they come with a lot of things kind of already weighing on them and from a really young age, um, 12. 12. <laughs> yeah. So, um which I bring them up here just to, to demonstrate this point. We live very close to vulnerability, don't we? You know, thanks guys for sharing. Um, there's one thing, Allie, every once in a while I get these texts, please pray for her in, in some kid's name because they have this amazing need that's going on right now. So thanks, I appreciate you guys and what you guys are teaching me about um, vulnerability and about caring for people. in these situations. And uh, Alan and I were talking about this uh, the other night, and uh, she said something interesting. She said, for kids to have hope, they have to have, I don't know how you said it, third voices. I should have asked you while you were up here, sorry. But uh, need to have a, a third voice or a third person in their story if, if they're going to make it. 
But I share this because they've been put in situations where either they've been pushed towards compassion or they've been able to observe people who are expressing and demonstrating compassion. But these are just two average kids who've grown up in an average home right here in average, you know, Waterford Clarkston, right? Who have discovered that there's a world of vulnerable people out there and have moved to do something about this. So let me finish up this morning by looking at this idea of compassion and what compassion actually is. And let me give you five ideas that come from this story. And the reason we look at these ideas is because we need to be moved with compassion. And being moved with compassion means actually moving with compassion. Here's the first thing. Compassion is going to name. Jesus was in Capernaum. And yet, he goes to Nain because that's where the vulnerability was. And we need to be people that move towards need. And we don't have to go far. You can go down the street here to find need. You can go into our schools here in, in Waterford to find need. Or if you want to go a little bit further, you can go into Pontiac or to Flint or into Detroit to find need. But we need to go to Nain. Uh, on Wednesday, um, Samantha Lamb, uh, the principal at Grayson, came over and we spent about an hour just debriefing about what's going on at Grayson and, and, and what's going on with Waterford Community Church and our relationship with Grayson School. There's incredible need here in this community. You don't have to go far, but you do have to go to Nain. And that requires us to adapt and to adopt an aggressive stance where I am looking for need, I'm looking for vulnerability, and I am moving towards it intentionally. Secondly, compassion is giving people a reason not to cry. There are needs in our world that are way beyond anything that we can do, anything that we can handle, anything that we can solve, fix, resolve. But there are people that have those needs that can be given a reason to smile. And if we can just for a few minutes give them a reason not to cry and give them something good and positive in their life, if coming into a classroom with a teacher who can say, I care about you, it's giving them a reason not to cry. If it's a kid who can come after school to to a, a program to, to learn how to make food. It's giving them a reason not to cry. And as we look at the vulnerable and the needy people around us, what can you do not to, not to fix everything? Because you can't. Not to raise them from the dead because you don't have that power. But to give them a reason not to cry. What can you do about that? What can I do about that? We can do something. Compassion is not waiting to be asked. This woman never asked Jesus for anything. And yet Jesus said, there's a need here. I'm going to step into this need and do something about it. And we need to be people that are aggressively searching out need and looking for vulnerability and then stepping into the situation. Not waiting for somebody to raise their hand and say, hey, could you come help us? But looking around and saying, okay, Jesus, I want to be like you. And I want to go to Nain and I want to give people reasons not to cry, and I'm going to step in without being asked. Reading a book right now where they use the word faith as a verb. Faithing? Faithing. I love that concept, isn't it? Faithing? 
Because faith is actually doing something, and faith and compassion here are, are doing something. And so we need to look into these stories, and we need to step into these stories. Compassion is not being afraid to touch. Jesus touched the stretcher. He touched the death. But Peter, if you go through the stories of, of uh, or excuse me, Peter, Jesus, Jesus, as you go through the stories in the Gospels, he touches people, physically touches people. A, a blind man who needs to see, he touches their eyes. Peter's mother-in-law who's sick, he touches her, raises her from the dead. How about a leper who's got leprosy? What did Jesus do? He did the unthinkable. He reached out and he touched that leper. And we need to be people who are willing to touch in scary situations where we get close enough to needs around us that we're willing to get a little bit dirty with those needs. Where we put ourselves at risk, where we make ourselves vulnerable in the process. Where we actually get in it with them. You know, one of our typical responses when we hear of need is to, well, let me write a check. And that's fine if that's all we can do. But sometimes I think we do that and think we've done our duty. When somebody didn't need a check as much as they needed an advocate. And I think the challenge for us as we look at this idea is where can we find people who need that advocate who's gonna, where they have a person who knows that cares. Where I may show up and say, I can't fix everything, but I'll be here. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about compassion. Compassion is doing whatever I can with whatever I have to help you with whatever you need. And that's a pretty big job description, isn't it? It's where it looks at me and says, what do I have? And it looks at you and says, what do you need? And anything that I have that you need, I'm going to do my best to share with you. If you're here this morning and you fall into the category where you say, you know what, I relate to the widow. I'm vulnerable right now. I've experienced incredible hardship or loss or heartbreak. Let me just assure you this morning that you have a God who cares about you, who moves towards you, who wants to bring comfort and healing and help in your story. And I hope that you will go to him with your need. But maybe that's not you this morning. You're not the vulnerable. If not, that's great. But you are surrounded by the vulnerable. Some of whom sit in this room this morning. Some of whom live in houses around this church. Some of them who live in our communities across this country and across the world. We have a responsibility and we have an opportunity to act in compassion. There was a large crowd that went with Jesus to Nain. Why? Because Jesus wanted to teach them about compassion. So let me just finish this morning with this challenge. To families. You said there's a family, there's a couple. What can you do, group together, say, what is the need around us and what can we do about it? Where we actually get our shoulders in there next to somebody to see how we can pursue the vulnerable. Maybe you need to do this with your small group. The next time you get together, say, you know what? We're going to be about more than just getting together and 
And studying God's Word's great, and praying's great, and eating's great too. But where we actually are going to be engaged with the vulnerable in our world. Maybe it's just you individually. And you're like, sign me up. Count me in. And if you need some ideas, talk to me. I can give you some ideas. But where we are people of compassion, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Why? Because he was willing to do something about it. Let's be people who do something about it. 